guys, please. It's a it's a female-led superhero movie. The hell I didn't see it on opening day. What are you talking about? I mean, you never know if somebody like something comes up. Like That's that true. Happens. I might have I might have died. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture pop culture podcast. Words are hard. Uh, connecting academic ideas to popular media and culture. I am Martha Sullivan. I am back on my farming business, and I am one of your able-bodied co-hosts here with. I am Pete Romberg. I am your other co-host, and I'm enjoying the fact that it's finally above freezing in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, so that's yeah, like delightful. Say, it's it's like thirty three here, so let's not yeah, let's not give the weather too much credit. Technically above freezing, only a few degrees below <laughs> average instead of ten to fifteen degrees below average. Well, the the year the calendar year rolled around and robbed me of an hour of sleep today. So decent weather is the least that it could do. <laughs> Uh, we are joined today by return guest, friend of the podcast, and one of the extremely talented co-hosts of 40 Going On 14, Josh Brown. Thank you Hello, so much for everybody. joining us, Josh. Yeah, thanks Josh. for having me back. It's always a good time. We are extremely excited uh, to discuss 90s pop culture in a way that we don't usually see it. Uh, later in the episode, um, listeners may recall that we did an episode on nostalgia not too long ago. That is not what we are going to be addressing today. We are going to be talking about were the 90s the way that we remember them? Uh, but before we get into that, we would like to tell you what has been stuck in our heads this week. The pop culture media that has uh, been percolating and really making us itchy to talk about it. Uh, Pete, what is stuck in your head this week? Uh, Tom King's run of Mr. Miracle concluded a few months ago, and the trade paperback was finally released a few weeks ago. Um, this graphic novel has been getting absolute astonishing uh, praise when it was coming out as a month-to-month -month issue. Um, comics nerds were salivating over all of it, um, and I just finished reading it, and I agree with all the positive praise. Um, it's absolutely fantastic grappling with very, you know, true-to-life issues while also being about the Son of God who was raised by the devil, basically. Uh, Mr. Miracle is one of uh, Jack Kirby's new gods, um, and yeah, his shtick is that he's a super escape artist who was uh, the, the son of, of, the, of the High Father, uh, given to Darkseid uh, as part of a hostage baby exchange to end a war, and then raised in hell, where he finally escaped, and uh, now he's a super escape artist. Um, the The book is incredible. I can't recommend it highly enough for both, like, New Gods fans and people who have no idea what the New Gods are. I feel like unpacking just the way that you described that book <laughs> is its own book. Yeah, no, I'm really excited. I'm really excited to read this one. Um, I purchase one of my one of my jobs at the library is buying graphic novels. And I've had this one on order for a while. And it finally came in this weekend. Nice, so nice. I'm really excited to get into this one myself. Mm -hmm. And on top of everything else, it looks unlike almost any other graphic novel I've seen. The art is stupendous and really uh 
interesting um, in, in a way that I enjoyed. Josh, what's been stuck in your head this week? Uh, I've been pretty much obsessed. I'm a little bit of a late adopter of Assassin's Creed Odyssey, but uh, I finally got into it, and uh, it uh, prompted me to spend quite a bit of money to get my PC up to where it could be experienced the way it was supposed to. I've been off the Assassin's Creed games for a while, but uh, this one I'd heard so much about. And uh, there are... Two choices for your main character, Cassandra, and the wrong choice. <laughs> well, that's good, because didn't Ubisoft kind of blow it real big with one of the previous Assassin's Creed games vis-a-vis -a, -vis a female player, player character? People had been clamoring for a very long time for that to be an option. And I think, yeah, their PR disaster move was claiming that the uh, additional resources spent animating a female character would be not worth it. And that didn't go so well. This isn't the first time you've had the option for your character to be uh, female, but I think the last time you were playing a pair of twins, it's in one of the games I didn't play. But, uh, yeah, the yeah. voice acting is spectacular, and uh, I, I love the Peloponnesian War setting. Yeah. That yeah, I've never, I've never been an Assassin's Creed person. I just remember hearing about that controversy and going, if Bioware is doing something better than you're doing, maybe re-examine your life choices. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, EA and Ubisoft have kind of had this race to the bottom thing going on for a long time. <laughs> so... I, I gotta say, when uh, Assassin's Creed Odyssey came out, I was watching, like, some clips and trailers and whatnot for it, and also loving the Peloponnesian War and Ancient Greeks and whatnot, I was real hard-pressed to not, like, run out and buy a console just to play that. Is yeah. Assassin's Creed PlayStation exclusive, or can you get those on the Xbox? I think it's uh, system neutral in general right now. I'm pretty sure it's Xbox One as well. Okay. I've been I've been extremely late to the party on Dragon Age Inquisition and whenever I although I was about to say whenever I finish that I might look into it, but at this point I may be playing this until I die, so we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I think as a character I don't know if you'll like the gameplay loop. Not everybody who's into Assassin's Creed like immediately loves it, but I do think you'll dig Cassandra as a character. I am I'm all about those uh strongly strong leading ladies uh as for myself i i had to think about this one guys because the obvious answer is captain marvel which i did see on opening day but we're going to get into that in a little bit in the episode so then i had to pick something else to talk about during this segment and my my initial instinct was that i wanted to talk about the steven spielberg ne netflix controversy but honestly, I really don't. It's dumb, <laughs> and he's dumb, and I'm over it. Um, I did a newsletter. Uh, I did a newsletter thing about it. So if you're interested in my thoughts, subscribe to my newsletter. Uh, what I'm actually going to talk about is I just finished a book yesterday called Bear Town by a man named Frederick Bachman. He has written a bunch of books that old white people like. Um, he wrote. A Man Called Ova, if you guys are familiar with that. Oh, I knew that uh, movie when it came out. 
yeah, it, it's the, the book that the movie was based off of. Mm. Um, I believe Bachman is a Swedish writer, um, but Beartown is a book that he wrote about a little tiny backwater town. Um, it's never specified, but I'm pretty sure it's in Sweden or Norway. Um, but it's one of those teeny-wee little towns where the only thing that matters mm-hmm. is hockey. It's a little bit Friday Night Lights, um, but with hockey instead of football. And the town is in decline, and all of their hopes are resting on this uh, high school-age boys hockey team, because if their junior team does really well in the finals, then the the National Hockey League is going to build a hockey academy in this town, and it's going to revitalize everything, and everything is going to change for these people. And then the night after the semifinals, which the boys team wins, which is not a spoiler because it's on the back of the book, (laughs) uh, their star hockey player uh, rapes a girl from the town. And then, Mm. yes. So then the book becomes about the fallout from this after she decides ultimately to report the assault to the police and what that does to her and what the town's reaction to that is and just the the horrific fallout from this book. Um, I had a lot of concerns at first because the first half of the book is really just hammering home like how important hockey is to this town, how many of the boys that are on the team, like how many of their futures depend on their success, um, how the like financial and continued future of this town kind of rests on the success of this cl- of this club. And at first I was like, I am not going to be able to handle this if the book then asks me to question mm-hmm. if the girl does the correct thing in reporting it, and mm-hmm. it doesn't. So again, without spoiling it, because I really loved this book and I want everyone to read it, The book spends so much time hammering home that point because it wants you to understand that when it says she still does the right thing, like what that means, like the gravity of the situation. Um, I loved this book. I was an emotional wreck (laughs) in about like the last quarter of it. Um, And I really, really recommend it. to, to anybody who is into, like, contemplating... Like, if you liked Friday Night Lights, read this book, basically. And I don't know of anybody who didn't like Friday Night Lights. So, <laughs> yeah, that's all I got. We are going to take a quick recess break, and when we come back, we are going to get into the 90s. Did we actually mm-hmm. like them? More on that in a bit. Today, we are going to be talking about the 90s, the effect of 90s pop culture on our own uh, lives and pop culture landscape, um, what we remember about the 90s, how we interpreted the 90s. Uh, Specifically, we will be asking ourselves, 
Uh, what were the pop culture trends that characterized the 90s for us? Uh, what truths about the 90s do we see reflected in the stories and methods of storytelling that we picked for our homework this week? Uh, why are some aspects of 90s pop culture more enduring than others? And finally, after we get into the specifics of our homework, what does current 90s nostalgia in pop culture miss about how the decade actually was? Um, why don't we... Do we want to go more realistic to less, or do we want to start with the weird one? Oh, that's an excellent question. I could go either way. I, could... my, impulse, my impulse is to start with realism. I would say so as well, especially considering we'd also be going from more familiar to the average person to less. Yes, good call. Yes. All right, so... That means that I am going to start. Um, I asked you guys to watch a couple of episodes of the sitcom Boy Meets World, uh, which aired start from 1993 to 2000 on ABC. Uh, Boy Meets World was about uh, Corey, who starts in starts the series in middle school and uh, progresses until I believe in the series finale he and his friends graduate from college, um, and it's a slice of life sitcom. Um, it starts as more of a family drama and then becomes a little bit more soap opera-y as he and his friends get older. Um, and I picked it because I really wanted to talk about one of those kind of immortal 90s sitcoms. And this was the one that I had a personal relationship with. I never watched Friends. I was not a Seinfeld or a Frasier person. Um, but Boy Meets World, I feel like, gets into the same kind of feeling as a lot of those do. The other one that was an option was Home Improvement for me, but I didn't want to talk about Tim Allen. Yeah, that was um, the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> so I left it up to you guys which episodes you watched. Um, and I guess first, is this a show you guys had seen before? I have never seen any of those. Oh, I, no, that's not true. I, I like Seinfeld seen some friends episodes but like i confused boy meets world and saved by the bell and i have seen neither um so this was my first exposure to it um so what i did is i watched a couple of the premiere ep episodes of like the first couple seasons uh for my part i was familiar with it uh i did not care for it but i don't think that has anything to do with the show and its own merit I kind of think this type of show, if it hits you at a certain age, it hits. Because I, I was watching it, and I was thinking, okay, it's been many years since I've seen an episode. Maybe I'll be more forgiving towards it. And I found I wasn't. And I started thinking, it's like, this is not objectively worse than Punky Brewster or Webster or whatever its equivalent was from the 80s. And it's probably because of the age I was when I was seeing myself represented in the precocious young kid as opposed to the exact same thing 15 years later. I am 100% willing to acknowledge that part of the reason I feel so fondly about this show is because when I started, I it was definitely one of those, I started watching around the same age um, as like Corey and his friends were. Um, I didn't I didn't start watching it when it originally premiered, but I was definitely in like late grade school, early middle school when I started watching it. Um, and I, I think that that definitely had an impact on the way that I related to the characters. 
because it's all on Hulu now, and I have tried to go back and watch the earliest episodes, and at this point, I just kind of have to start from when they're in high school. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, yeah, Pete, I, I will say that I think it does get better the older that they get and the more comfortable the show feels getting into, like, serious issues. Well, and, and related to that, I didn't realize how... Um messagey the show was uh like you know that oh, this was on this was on abc man this was. <laughs> right well and because it was just a show that always passed me by i'm like all right it's a sitcom from the 90s a uh, family-friendly sitcom cool not like watching you know a couple episodes for this i'm like oh every single episode has a moral and a message that's i don't think we're making shows like that at least certainly not in this way I, you know what I should have done? I should have made you guys watch the episode where Sean joins a cult. Ooh, cults are fun. I would <laughs> yeah, love to see 90s those, moral panic around of, it. Well, it, no, it's actually, it's one of those, like, secret youth groups that turns out to be, like, a cult for wayward kids. So it's not, like, satanic. It's just sort of insidious. Mm -hmm. Um but let's get into a little bit of why I wanted to pick this, um, because I think that the 90s sitcom is something or the ubiquitousness, the ubiquity of that handful of 90s sitcoms like Friends and Seinfeld. Those are famous and watched in a way that I don't think we really have an equivalent for in the world of sitcoms right now. And I, I don't know if that's because we have more sitcoms or if those in particular like hit on a particular cultural note at the right time or what? One other possibility is that I, I think that back in the nineties and, and eighties sitcoms kind of were what was on TV. Um, unless like for, for non-cartoon fiction, whereas now you have, um, you know, game of Thrones and, um, stranger things like higher budget, different, um, you know, uh, genres. True, but a lot of those shows are not, I mean, I, I think one of the things that it's important to not forget about the the sitcoms of the 90s is that they were accessible in a way that mm -hmm. Game of Thrones is not. Yeah, like oh, the whole family could sit down and watch it. And I, I, I feel like there is a wider disbursement of the networks that sitcoms are on. We don't really have anything that is universal. Um the way that the 90s sitcoms were. And I guess I'm I'm asking, do we think that that's because of the shows themselves or because the circumstances of the 90s in which they were airing? Well, I kind of think some of this is a symptom of peak media where everyone is able to curate whatever they're watching around their particular interests. It's not that there isn't an equivalent to that sort of sitcom, because I could find a, a through line from the 80s with Cheers to current day with a few years ago, How I Met Your Mother, and now maybe Modern Family, where people that don't have niche interests, that is the sitcom that they're talking about. And those, those shows, maybe even the Goldbergs, they're hugely popular, but like they're kind of off my radar because I'm able to curate, I've got more geek stuff than I could watch if I didn't have a job and didn't need to sleep. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think those shows exist still, 
and they're still very popular, but their impact is diminished because there's more choice. I mean, when going back further, I, I use Cheers as my first example because every person watched Cheers because that's what was on. It's not that you didn't sure. have any other channels, but you only had a few other big networks, and that's just not the case anymore. And I, I completely agree. Um, and then I think that on the other side, we have, like, sort of the critic community, and, you know, these shows are not as appealing, I think, to critics as a more, um, because they are sore, sort of more... Um, mass appeal i liked your idea of like you know people who don't have niche interests per se um i'm gonna interrupt you real fast just to point out that modern family has won about 18 bajillion golden globes oh, yeah yeah totally um i i'm talking more about like um what the critical conversation is talking about like it uh you know the obsession over like true detective when that first came out in the first season um I, I think that there are shows that, like, critics like talking about because they're doing, you know, things that are either different or clever or what have you, um, that and that sort of sucks up the airspace so that, like, that community isn't talking as much about um, Modern Family. Uh, you know, obviously it's still being talked about and reviewed, but not in the same sort of way. It doesn't uh, control the conversation as much as it did in the 90s. I, I guess I don't have enough experience with reading critical analysis to be able to contribute to that particular discussion. <laughs> uh, this could also be my uh, narrow bubble of what <laughs> critics I read and what they tend to write about. So, well, And no, that scans I... with what I've encountered as well. Mm -hmm. Like I see those conversations about the Game of Thrones and about True Detective, even now in the uh, gaming sites that aren't just gaming sites that I'll read. Like uh, IGN will regularly talk about those sorts of shows, but I rarely if ever see anything about any uh, sitcom that isn't maybe maybe occasionally you'll see something about parks and record brooklyn 99 that whole family of the i think that's scott Schur's shows uh mike sure mike sure mike sure mm -hmm. shows um but uh it, not as much about the uh, more uh, what i would call the equivalent of the ubiquitous 90s sitcom I would also just like to take a moment to deeply appreciate the oversized flannels and oversized denim that show up in this show. <laughs> uh, um, and the hair, the feathered I, hair. And so much hair. Um, but that that gets that that visual those visual cues, I feel, and I know that we're not really supposed to be talking about nostalgia today, but there is something about getting i mean it's not getting the look right because these shows this show was made in the 90s so it, it it's just what the look was but i guess revisiting that and it's simultaneously like i'm glad we're done with that but also comforting <laughs> and comforting to know that we're done with it i i, I know it was intentional but the fact that we all chose products both set in and created in the 90s is important because of what you're saying about nostalgia like mm -hmm. this isn't a nostalgic fashion choice it's what the fashion choice was um thought, and and that I helps that it was... yeah right <laughs> that, that, that is the point right yes. yeah yeah all right so if we are going from most real to less real pete 
tell us what you assigned us for homework. I assigned the 1996 uh, slasher film a Scream, directed by Wes Craven. This is sort of Wes Craven's return to horror, uh, reinventing it uh, for the 90s. Um, Scream is the horror series with Ghostface in it, and the, you know, um, it, it's a meta, slightly darkly humorous horror slasher movie um, about a killer who wears a Ghostface Halloween mask going around stabbing some high school kids. Um... Spoiler for a 20-year-old movie that you all were supposed to have seen. Turns out there are two of them. Uh, and they're doing it to get back at uh, someone for their mom, basically. Um, I chose Scream for the 90s because I wanted to... Um, I, I thought that an important part of 90s culture and media was the idea of like sarcasm and irony and self-awareness and the raised eyebrow. Um Deadpool was invented in the 90s, and um, Scream sort of created a, a kind of film that didn't exist before uh, within the horror um, genre and made it, it, it was an incredibly popular movie, it made it mainstream. Um, and I thought it captured sort of that 90s ethos of, like, always being arch and sarcastic and never being, like, and, and always being self-aware of whatever it is you're talking about or doing. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that grunge was invented in the 90s. Yes, yeah. I love um, this so, movie. I have always loved this movie. Yeah, I, I was going to ask, have you guys, had you seen this beforehand? Um, I was a sixth grade girl once. I watched this movie at a slumber party. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and it was remade. So not only have I seen it, uh, I've, I've seen it and talked about it uh, at length. Mm-hmm. Uh, comparing it to the the newer incarnation uh this this was uh my journey on this film went from <laughs> thinking it was uh mind-blowingly awesome to being a little disappointed with the slick self-aware horror subgenre it created mm -hmm. that got to the point where it was almost mugging at the camera the whole genre mm -hmm. and it got to the point where that attitude was bleeding into other horror and i didn't like some of what Scream did to other horror that wasn't Scream. Like, it seemed like a horror refused to take itself seriously for 15 years. So you, can, you blame, can you blame Scream for that, though? Well, I, I can blame the studio executives that said, hey, not taking horror seriously made a bunch of money, so let's do that without really understanding why it was appropriate in Scream isn't necessarily appropriate in... I don't have a specific example off the top of my head, but I remember constantly seeing that. Well, it's it's important to, to point out that, like, Scream being directed by Wes Craven, it's a legitimately good horror movie as its, its bedrock. And then on top of that, you build the self-awareness and the, the very, like, 90s attitude. If you don't have that bedrock of, like, good horror movie to start with... Um, all the self-awareness in the world just looks, like, bad. Well, yeah, and that's where I came back around on it, is, like, I I don't know that I could hold it completely against Scream for, like, what happened to horror because of studio heads who watched Scream. It's still, like, a very solid movie. The, the sequel's not always so much so, but, like, this first one was really, really good. And speaking of studio heads, I do have to point out that, unfortunately, this was a Weinstein uh, production. So, 
Got that hanging over it as well. Listen, it... <sighs> yeah. I have, we, we about, very we... <laughs> I have a lot of very complicated feelings about that whole issue, but I think the fact is that he there are too many Weinstein Company movies. Mm-hmm. And I am most I think that we have to be satisfied with him never working again rather than decrying the entire um portfolio of films that his company helped produce and for more on this go check out our back episode on problematic faves Uh, another Um, aspect of this whole thing with scream is that uh the 80s for how crazy like how much we look at the pop culture the 80s was not a particularly self-aware decade It, mm -hmm. it didn't like start to question what's going on and i think the 90s Maybe not the first time, but the first time I can think of, they started saying, you know, the stuff we've accepted as pop culture and society, what if it's all bullshit? And Mm -hmm. you see that a little bit in Scream. It's like, you've got these horror tropes. Let's question them and let's really put them through the ringer Mm -hmm. in a funny way. And I don't think Scream could have been made before the 90s. Right. No, and... I agree. I think a lot of what the 90s does for us is ask, like, makes us as an audience ask, why do we like the things that we like? Like, what is this media doing um, that makes us a fan and kind of pokes fun at, like, seri- it, almost, it almost pokes fun at earnest devotion to things. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like that's part of the, not, not Dadaistic, but almost... Um, like self-aware nature of a lot of the nineties pop culture is just like, you're a big fan of this. Why? Kind of sucks to be honest. (laughs) Well, and even not like kind of sucks. I I think that it's a lot of it. I think eventually evolved too far and became like defensive, making fun of things you like so that you don't feel like, so that no one can accuse you of liking anything. Um, I think that was very much like a nineties uh, ethos of like, well, it's like, it's not cool to actually like things. So if we stand back with our arms folded and our eyebrows raised, we can enjoy it by making fun of it, even if we secretly love it. Yeah, I've seen that. And Josh, I apologize in advance to you about this. I have seen that described as a very Gen X mentality. Hmm. Uh, we're the slacker um, generation. Uh, you have no apologies to me. I, 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 I own it where it's applicable. Yeah, this this devotion to apathy, almost like cultural apathy, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous because I think that a lot of the me- I mean, the media coming out in the 90s, like it may have been preaching apathy, but it demanded attention in the same way that all pop culture does. Well, so- yeah, that's the thing is it's like baby's first nihilism. You want to be nihilistic, but committing to something that much is too much work. I mean, that's basically it. And you still have to be a fan of, like, you you still have to care about something for it to mean anything to you. I... That was a... That was a... That was nothing. (laughs) What what you just said about Gen Xers, though, um, made me realize that 
and this is an obvious statement, but I literally did not think about it until you said that. So I'm going to say it for the audience if they also didn't think this. Um, but the the products being made in the 90s were being created for Gen X. Um, like that was the main targeted consumer cohort of the time. Um, which sort of explains why the sort of like both the weirder stuff uh, like we'll be talking about with the next uh homework and this more um arch nihilist ethos like permeates it pretty heavily well and i think it's kind of telling that a lot of the 90s media that's being revisited now is media that was a originally intended intended for yours and my generation pete mm -hmm. like it's a lot of stuff that was geared towards kids right so it's like the the gen x centered media is not really getting revisited now right right because we're still dissecting and recycling our own childhood stuff from the 80s right <laughs> god which that means is... that I, I don't think anyone's no one's ever gonna reboot freaks and geeks guys i'm sorry oh i i think i'm okay with that i i think i like the idea of it just being you know its own existent thing okay. that you can watch on netflix at any time I never watched it. Mm. Josh, please tell us. Please explain. <laughs> please okay. explain the Max to our audience. Well, the Max is image comics. And when you're talking about 90s era of attitude in comics, image is, uh, that was its heyday. It burst onto the scene. You've got Spawn, you've got Savage Dragon, and you've got The Max, which if you missed it when it came on MTV Oddities, which is how I first experienced it, this little offshoot of liquid television where they were just putting up this weird stuff to see what stuck, like, it immediately captured me. Uh, it was uh, published originally by Image. It's now uh, controlled by IDW, uh, created by Sam Keith, uh, and you've got uh, Bill Messner, Loeb, Sam Keith, and even Alan Moore writing for the uh, run. What, was Image the um, artist-owned uh, company? Like, that was sort of their ethos, right? That was sort of their thing, is like, you've got these guys that were the fresh young blood at Marvel and DC who felt like they weren't getting the respect that they deserved, and they went off and made their own company. These were like all the big hotshot up-and-comers. I mean, that's left... still true. Yeah. And uh, the Max starts with this big purple guy who is, lives in a box in an alley, and he's not quite sure if he's crazy or if he's really flipping between the real world where he is taken care of by Julie, the freelance social worker, and he occasionally takes down muggers and frequently is in and out of being arrested for vagrancy or violence. And then this fantasy version of Australia where Julie's there too, but she's a warrior jungle queen and he's protecting her there against these little creatures and demons and mountains that walk. And he, he's really struggling with what's real and what's all in his head. 
And normally this would just be a very straightforward character piece where you're wandering along with him, but thrown a wrench in is the villain, Mr. Gone, who is also aware of both worlds and seems to know more about Max and Julie than they know about themselves. But how much can you trust a serial killer rapist? So there's that. Super psychological, very surreal superhero comics that I, I don't think you could do today. That's the max. Uh, did not care for this one. However, I'm really glad that you assigned it, Josh, because one of the things that I had tossed around picking and was encouraged by Pete not to, for, for valid reasons, I don't mean to... to blame you for any of that pete um was the thief and the cobbler an animated film and one of the reasons that i wanted to pick it was because i really wanted to talk about how weird some of the animation got in the 90s mm -hmm. and the max fits there um i read i read as much of the comic as i could find on hoopla um but i was reading about the animated series um and just this this whole trend of like of animation that is kind of upsetting and a little bit gross. Um, I think it its origins are more in the seventies with like Ralph Bakshi's stuff, but I do think that a lot of things happened in the nineties to sort of develop that. Are you talking um, like the Ren and Stimpy sort of? Uh... Yeah, like Ren and Stimpy, Rocco's Modern Life, Rugrats, like a lot of the cartoons that were on Nickelodeon that probably were not actually kid-friendly, but that I watched as a grade schooler. I, I love Ren and Stimpy, um, and I have no idea how that got greenlit for children. Ren and Stimpy is really upsetting. Um, but also, like, Beavis and Butthead. Um, Daria, to a certain extent, but more in attitude rather than visuals, but like this whole, this kind of um, surrealistic animation and illustration style, uh, which is very clearly demonstrated in the Max. Um, but yeah, I got very strong, very strong Ren and Stimpy vibes from this one. Um, but yeah, I... I just, I just really need people to stop using rape as a plot device. For sure. And that was one of the reasons why this is somewhat problematic, because almost everything comes down to what happened to Julie. Well, and I will say that that actually is a plus for me, because I, I was reading about it when I, when it became clear that I was not going to be able to read as much as I think you ideally wanted us to, Josh, I was reading about it on wikipedia and also tv tropes and it sounds like the central theses of this book end up being about how we process trauma so at least it matters like she's not just being raped so that the max can have a story but also at the same time it's not something and i under i as i'm saying this i i realize the irony of me complaining about this when my Stuck in my head is a book where a girl gets raped in it. Sure. Um, it's just a lot. It was a lot. Um, yeah. I, that being said, it felt like it's it's certainly problematic, and we would recognize it as such today. 
But I, I thought this was a really interesting pick for graphic novels in the 90s because starting in the 80s with like your Frank Miller, but then definitely in the 90s, it's sort of like your your grim dark comics where even the mainstream superheroes are, um, you know, getting grimmer and grittier. And this is sort of take, taking that all through a like a, a more surrealistic lens, pushing you know, in, in some storytelling directions, but also really doubling down on sort of the, like, the mega violence and the psychological trauma and just the darkness that comics in the 90s really loved because it was kind of the first time people were, were using that medium to explore it. Sure, and you've got uh, a couple of different uh, presentations of feminism in here. I mean, you've got two characters that explicitly, in different scenes, talk about uh, their experience and their view on the world through the lens of particular feminist thinking. And then you've got the Max himself, who is like a secondary survivor. What happens to him is a consequence of what happens to Julie. And... uh, he is, uh, you've also got the mental illness and uh, problems of the homeless kind of being examined here in a way that I didn't see again until the last five, six years. Mm-hmm. It seemed in some ways both a product of its time and way ahead of its time. Yeah, the, the feminism bit is is interesting. I, I was laughing as I was reading that because it also felt like it reads very much like a Tarantino sort of dialogue bit. Um, you take that back. <laughs> but like I, like like now, the '90s was a time when identity was being grappled with and explored. So the idea of two characters having in-depth discussions about like Gloria Steinman um, or whoever they were talking about. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Paglia and Steinem. Yeah, um, exactly. Was was very much like. That is the kind of thing that a, what now we would call like a woke comic would include. Um, although I, I don't think we would consider the politics necessarily like woke these days. Well, yeah, and it's really interesting considering you've got Julie, who is a staunch feminist, but also as a result of what happened to her trends, harder right wing than you would see. That's not something you'd see today. Someone who's both a feminist and kind of right wing because she's got this defensive kind of mindset. It's like there's one line that sums that up is when I I think someone asks her, aren't you blaming the victim there? And she's like, there's plenty of blame to go around. She blames everybody, including herself. Mm -hmm. So of the three of these things, do we feel, do we feel that we picked a representative spread of like nineties, what we think of as being nineties pop culture trends? We didn't pick music, and you talked about grunge, and that's obviously, like, a definitionally 90s thing. Um, but then there are also the boy bands and sort of the alt scene. Like, I <laughs> I laugh real hard anytime a 90s song, like a pop song comes on, because it's like, oh, that is the 90s guitar riff. Got it. Um, but I, I think that music would be too tangential to, um, like, the other pop cultures that we're grappling with. For sure. And, I mean... You've also got the party rap and early '90s R&B that has a very definite sound. Your uh, yeah, Belle Biv DeVoe, your Boys to Men. I, I think I even picked a an episode of uh, Boy Meets World based on the fact that it was called Boys to Mensa. 
So I, I didn't <laughs> know if there was going to be something there where it linked it more clearly into the decade. It turned out to just be a play on words. Oh, well. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. The The one thing that I wish we'd gotten a little bit more of is the difference between the... So I picked I picked something that I had been a fan of when I was in the 90s. So in the 90s, I was age 3 to 13. So I picked something that I had a relationship with in the 90s. But I think that there's a, a whole other aspect of 90s pop culture that was kind of aimed towards kids that we did not really touch on that would be Um, like what we were talking earlier rugrats and whatnot yeah so like britney spears the spice girls um stuff that was very characteristic of the 90s for me but not necessarily for people for whom the 90s was like their defining decade um by which i mean gen xers i guess (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I would have been 14 to 24 during the 90s, so yeah, a big deal. That That's your defining age for sure. Yeah. Well, and I was, I was looking up, I was doing a little bit of reading on just like, uh, in an academic way, like what were the pop culture trends and developments in the 90s? And I realized that I, there were a couple of kind of, seminal pieces of media that I could have assigned that I just forget were from the 90s. Um, Like Space Jam, I could have picked that I feel would have fit into this discussion. (laughs) Wow, Um, Space Jam is very 90s. Exactly, but I... I, It's 90s in a different way Mm -hmm. because that's like, that's surrealistic in in insanity way (laughs) not insanity um surrealistic in much more of a like childlike way rather than this rather than like the nihilism of the max i guess um i don't know it's i guess what i i guess all of this is to say it's important to remember that a decade can't really be defined by one pop culture trend and even though we have a good spread that i think covers a lot of things retroactively i'm like oh i could have talked about independence day (laughs) i was just thinking about (laughs) independence day uh because i scream was kind of a blockbuster but we didn't assign any like proper blockbuster movies um and i'm kind of glad we didn't because mm -hmm. uh, like we see in the only 90s kid will will understand you'll see fresh prince of bel-air and the super nintendo and these same five or six things over space jam over and over and over again and we got stuff that was adjacent to that but i i feel that is at the fringes especially with the max of what people talk about when they talk about the 90s and this was all a part of the 90s that a lot of us lived well and, and josh that those sort of listicles were the the genesis for you wanting to talk about this category right like your sort of idea of like there was more than space jam to the 90s exactly yeah Yeah, and it's not that we didn't listen to MC Hammer and watch Space Jam and play the Super NES. That all happened, but there was more going on that I think people forget about. And it's not that people have forgotten about Scream or Boy Meets World, 
but there's things going on there that were important to defining the decade other than just kind of the surface stuff about those properties whether you love them or hate them there's some very uh, important things that don't make the listicles. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to turn our attention to these last two questions. I just want to touch on this third one real quick because um, I think we've covered it mostly. Um, but why do we think, it, as, a, as a follow-up to what you just said, Josh, why do we think some artifacts of 90s pop culture make those listicles where some don't? Like, what is it about, um, why do we think, why do we think something like Space Jam keeps making those listicles, but something like the Max doesn't? Because I had not actually ever heard of it before uh, Josh assigned it for this episode. Yeah, neither had I. Part of it, I think, is accessibility. Um, I mean, Space Jam is weird, but it's got Michael Jackson, or hello, uh, it's got Michael Jordan. I'm from Chicago. <laughs> I know those people. <laughs> um, and, like, Looney Tunes. And so that's, like, a built-in, everyone knows Michael Jordan. Everyone knows the Looney Tunes. Um, I, I, so everyone, like, we know what we're getting there. The Max is a lot, you know, you've been using the word surreal, and I think that's there, but, like, it's heady, it's difficult, um it's it's bizarre and i think that your you know that for noted exceptions aside i think that the the base who are going to be interested in that is much smaller um and so when it gets filtered 20 years later those people are still thinking about it and remembering it fondly but it hasn't grown into a um like a social uh level like memory I almost wonder if it is speaking more about our current pop culture landscape, about what we want to remember and talk about, than the 90s pop culture landscape that we keep remembering. Because the stuff that ends up making all of those BuzzFeed articles tends to be the optimistic stuff, tends to be the more candy-coated stuff, I guess. And it, I, I feel like it's the darker or the the weirder or the more depressing or the more thoughtful um media that doesn't get reminisced as much about reminisced about as much is the correct way that that sentence should go and i i feel like that has more to do with what we want to be thinking about and talking about now than it did with what people were thinking about and talking about when it was actually happening I also think there's a case of a simple iconography. Like if you want to show a decade visually, if I'm talking comics, one of the reasons I'm not going to go to the max, I might go for something like Rob Liefeld and his obsession with a billion pouches, oversized guns and not being able to draw feet. Mm -hmm. Like that's something like (laughs) you can see a a drawing of cable and immediately think 1994. Yep. Um, and, and the same thing with, uh, like, an image of Will Smith wearing, like, uh, clothes that look like they were colored in with a highlighter. That's something that's very, very easy to identify at its, in its place in time. And I, I, I think it's, it's that those moments that are both visually or orally in the case of, not orally like eating, but orally as in listening when it comes to uh, the music where you've got something where you can look at it and you're like, yes, that is 
early 90s or that is mid 90s and some of this other stuff is a little harder to pin down because it maybe wasn't done first and it maybe wasn't done best in the 90s well and thinking of the max the dialogue feels 90s but the art doesn't the art feels like you know that could have come out you know 10 years ago five years ago two years ago um i disagree heavily but hmm. keep going hmm Oh, well, that that was basically my take. I was like that. That to me, like the dialogue and the the storyline places it very much in the '90s, but the art feels more um, like it couldn't have existed before the '90s. But it was pushing the boundaries in the '90s that then became more. I don't want to say common or mainstream now, but like present on the fringes still now. So it doesn't feel as like locked in in time. And when you talk about the art, I assume you're talking about the mainstream Earth version, which is the very... Because the art, it's worth mentioning that the art changes. The art style changes when he's in Pangea. It changes again if you're in, like, Julie's childhood memory. It almost gets a, like, hand-drawn, crayon kind of quality. So they play with the art styles based on what's going on in the storyline, but I get what you're saying if we're talking about, like, the default, we're in New York, the quote-unquote real or is it real world. Well, and the so. idea of of playing with the art style to fit the storyline, I think, was a thing that was starting to pop up in the 90s, but still exists now. Um, For in, sure. In a way that, like, the 90s power chord doesn't really exist in music now, unless it's trying to reference, like, that 90s sound. Here you could have an artist not trying to reference a 90s comic feel and still use that sort of technique. When was Steve Ditko drawing Doctor Strange? Ooh, 70s? Uh, yeah, well, I want to say even late 60s, because that was heavily uh, influenced by Psychedelia. Yes. Because the the strongest feelings that I got reading the Max were Ralph Bakshi and Steve Ditko, hmm. so, which, is why I, which is why I disagreed with you, Pete, that this mm-hmm. could only have been drawn in the 90s, um, which is not that important just sort of where my touchstones were happening Mm -hmm. um so what do we pete do you do you guys feel like we've covered the last question no i don't think so okay i I know we were we were scratching at the edges of it there when we were talking about why something didn't make the listicles yeah. So what do we think? So specifically, um, so our listeners remember where we were headed. Um, but what does current 90s nostalgia in pop culture miss about how the decade really was? And I guess by really was, I can only be referring to how we remember it. <laughs> um, so For I guess sure. what is, what is, what's the difference between 90s pop culture nostalgia and our recollections of living through that decade. Well, for my part, I I can say that uh, you can go back and you can find individual pieces of media that do a deep dive into what the generation was uh, in terms of like committing to not caring, committing to underachievement, Uh, everything from slackers on skateboards wearing flannels to Bart Simpson You've got a very surface level like examination of that. But when you talk about the 90s, nobody really brings up what effect it has on an entire generation committing as like, this is our thing. 
we're not going to be better than our parents, so we're not even going to try. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I feel like that earnestness is what gets missed. Like, we get a lot of the apathy, but we don't get the commitment to the apathy. Or or even um, uh, Boy Meets World is, is sort of an antidote to this, where it, it is a very earnest, heart-on-sleeve sort of show. It, it is very much... In that way, it doesn't feel like the like the other two things we assigned. Um, because I think you're right that amongst the apathetic posturing, there was a intensity to it. But that wasn't the entirety of the decade. Like, there was also the, the flip side, which was the more earnest, um, you know, family-friendly shows. Yeah, well, like, there's a there's a sincerity there that I feel like we don't see in... Like, I, I feel like the trends in media now are a lot of, like, deconstruction and cynicism. Like, I don't know how many times I've come on this podcast and exclaimed over how grateful I am whenever anybody makes a, a sincere and earnest rom-com, because I feel like everyone's been so obsessed with deconstructing it. And... The the 90s also had a kind of earnestness about it. I completely agree. And I, I think one thing that uh, I, I was struck with in the three random episodes of specifically Boy Meets World that I uh, watched was what they were trying to get across. If there's one thing a person takes away from Boy Meets World, it's probably that your teachers are people too. And even when you hate them, they're caring about you. Like, I, I honestly feel like Mr. Feeney was like the most important character on that show. Mm-hmm. He, he, the, the reasons the show invented for him to travel through all three levels of school with those kids were ridiculous, but also I didn't care because he was the best. Mm -hmm. The idea that a teacher could care that much and that sincerely about his students was, for grade school me, like, revelatory. The last thing I just want to touch on real briefly, because I do actually want to talk about Captain Marvel. Oh, yeah, Mm. right. In media that is created now that depicts the 90s what do we think is successful and what is not captain marvel specifically because it takes place in 1996 95 one of those two one of those yeah that sounds about right because six years earlier would have been 89 which would have been right for guns and roses shirtwear at karaoke Um, well, one thing Josh, you had mentioned this earlier is like the easy visual touchstone. Um, and watching Boy Meets World, it is good to be reminded that those aren't just, uh, caricatures. It's actually what the fashion was. Um, I also always think of the first season of West Wing, where everyone is running around in their father's suits. Um, giant shoulder pads. (laughs) it's, It's not a good look, but it's a instantly dated like, like, you know exactly when it's taking place via those looks. Um, and I, I think that that's, uh, you know, an important marker always. I really enjoyed um, Captain Marvel. Let's get that out of the way. But yes. I do feel that occasionally the 90s stuff was a little too cheeky wink and a nod. Hey, remember this? 
and most of the time it worked for me, but occasionally I, I found myself having conflicting feelings about how, hey, we're going to zoom in on Alta Vista right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I enjoyed Captain Marvel as well. Um, I did sometimes feel like they pretty much only set it in the 90s so that the beeper moment in Infinity War would work. Um, I... I didn't. I got the feeling the '90s was set dressed for a couple of gags. Um, so like we get the gag of her in the internet cafe, like slowly, like Ulta Vista-ing the name <laughs> of that restaurant. Um, and we get the the joke from Nick Fury about how she looks like someone's disaffected niece, and to take off the the flannel that she has stolen from a mannequin. Um, uh, th- there's a good gag about how long something takes to load. Like off off a CD yeah, ROM or whatever, yeah. There was nothing particularly '90s in the attitude of the movie, I guess. And as I'm saying this, I wonder if that matters, or if it's okay that this was just like '90s for appearances' sake. I mean, I I also really enjoyed it. Um, my critiques were mostly of filmmaking in certain scenes. Um, I thought some things were underlit. Uh, but I, I think that it's, it would be weird and bad if it had a 90 sensibility because it's a Marvel movie and those have their own sensibilities. Like the, the, you know, Marvel cinematic universe sort of like feel and sensibility, um, which I think would be at odds with the nineties and that they would not like, it would feel, uh, like discordant if they were smashed up together in anything more than, um, you know, setting. Also, she's a space alien, so, you know, she doesn't have to be disaffected nihilistic. The other thing that I just wanted to mention briefly, I just finished watching American Crime Story, The Assassination of Johnny Versace, which is another piece of media that was made uh, last year about um, something that happened in the 90s. And I did just want to give a shout out because I think that one nails both the visuals and the attitude uh, because it's about a true thing that happened when Andrew Kahneman, um shot and killed uh, Johnny Versace in Miami, uh, California. Um, you do get a lot of like media attitudes. And like at one point when his body is discovered on the, the steps of his house, and the police are just being called in and somebody snaps a legit Polaroid <laughs> of his, of the crime scene. And like, while people are swarming this still bloody crime scene, he's like, I've got the only photo. I'll sell it for $30,000. Like, wow, that, that struck me as a very paparazzi princess die media kind of nineties moment. So I think that because it's about a true story, they get the the attitude that we've been talking about all episode uh, in a really interesting and accurate way. You just also, rem- the, denim, oh. the denim in that show is atrocious and completely <laughs> on point. It's ridiculous. You just reminded me of something I encountered not so long ago that also did the 90s right in terms of the tiny details almost everyone else would miss. Um, The newest season of True Detective 
has three slices of a detective's life and the middle one uh, is set in the 90s. There's a particular sequence in a Walmart that it was mind-blowing because you don't think about how different Walmarts were 25 years ago. Hmm. But when you see it, it's like, oh my God, this is an exact recreation. They've been slowly changing the iconography and the way the stores are laid out. Somebody remembered all that just for this scene and just nailed it. Yeah, so. the details the details in Johnny Versace are also excellent. Like the down to the pens that people have in their pen cups. Like he checks into a cheap Florida or a cheap California motel that has one of those like cheap lawn flamingo pens sitting in its pen cup. It, it it's perfect. The show is very Ryan Murphy inconsistent, but the the visuals are are spot on. Props to the set decorators. Yup, never something he's had a had a problem with. Um, do we have any other thoughts of, that we want to make sure that we get to about the nineties? I'm good. Yeah, I, I think this has uh, gotten to the places I'd hoped to go. Oh, good. So All it's right. always fun to talk about a look back and not be talking about remakes or nostalgia in particular because I've been doing quite a bit of that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I bet. <laughs> All right. That is going to do it for our episode today. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you back. Uh, you are welcome back anytime you'd like. Oh, yeah. If you're happy to have me, I'm happy to be here. So. <laughs> Always. Uh, where can people find you on the Internet? Uh, easiest place to find me is on 40 Going on 14, a retro then and now podcast uh, explicitly about nostalgia. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, TalkShoe, uh, or just directly on the web through Facebook or our website, www.40go14.com. And if you want to talk to me in particular, I'm on Twitter, at DocStout. Uh, I'm just going to quick plug the episode of 40 Going On 14 that I guested on, which at this point was several years ago, but was still super fun to do because you let me talk about female comic creators for like an hour and a half. So oh, yeah, we, we kind of <laughs> tailored that to the uh, to our guest. We, I did we, not mind being pandered to. Oh, and I don't <laughs> think we could have done it without you, so... Uh, Pete, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O 3000, uh, talking politics and pop culture. Um, I guess check out my hot take on Captain Marvel, which is one tweet long and not that hot of a take. Uh, it's also on our show's Instagram account. If people Ooh, our like show has an Instagram that. account. Yes, I apparently have too much time on my hands, so our show does now have an Instagram account. Uh, you can find us, uh, you can find the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at DYDYH podcast. You can find us, hold on. <coughs> you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on the web at homeworkpodcast.com. <laughs> you can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. Uh, please do get in touch with us if you have questions, comments, concerns, ideas for show topics. Uh, if you want to be a guest, there's no reason we would say no. 
You can find me at Magical Martha most places. You can subscribe to my newsletter to get all of my thoughts about Steven Spielberg, Netflix, and why old white dudes need to stop talking um, at tinyletter.com backslash Magical Martha. Um, am I forgetting anything in our sign-off, Pete? Uh, other than what we're talking about next episode. Cool. Uh, so next episode, we are going to be joined by first time, yes, first time guest of the podcast, yep. Hannah, who will be uh, joining us to talk about classism and class divisions as they are portrayed in popular culture. Your homework from me is the 2018 Boots Riley masterpiece, Sorry to Bother You. Oh, it's so good. Uh Pete, what are you assigning? Uh, I am assigning the Secret Service, also known as Kingsman the Secret Service, graphic novel by Mark Millar that spawned the uh, two movies. Um, our hope is that the graphic novel is, is very similar in tone and plot and everything to the first movie. So um, that's where we're going there. But honestly, probably if you feel like watching the movie rather than reading the comic, that would suffice. Yeah, I, I know... Uh, and at least two of us have read the movie, or, uh, hello, seen the movie, so uh, we might be blending our, our discussion of the two. Um, And then Hannah is assigning the... Pete, I'm going to let you introduce this one because... Uh, Hannah is assigning the British comedy show Jeeves and Wooster, uh, starring Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie. Um, she's specifically assigning the season one, episode three episode, uh, The Purity of the Turf. Uh, thank you, everyone. That is going to do it for us today. Class dismissed.